Hey everyone, just a quick word about the episode you're about to hear. So this was a show that we recorded about the role that sports plays in Stephen King and in horror as a genre, and we did this about a month ago now. So that was before the sweeping worldwide protests against racial injustice. If you heard our episode last week, we plan to address that much more overtly in future episodes that we've got coming with athletes and sports media specifically on that topic. Also, keep in mind, we talk about the NBA on this show, and this was recorded before the recent spike in COVID cases, which I think is making it a little bit more unclear when the league is coming back. So just bear that in mind as well. Again, we're going to have a lot more content coming that's more closely tied to the issues of the day. But for now, this is something that we had in the can that's just a lot of fun. So those of you looking for some entertainment, we hope that you enjoy it. Like I said, hold your head, son, and don't take a second. Check it out now. Well, come on while I wreck it. Like I said, hold your head, son, and don't take a second. Check it out now. Well, come on while I wreck it. Like I said, if you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. And on today's show, we've got Michael Rothman from Consequence of Sound, from the Losers Club, from Halloweenies, diving into a topic I've been circling around on this show forever and finally got to. Sports and Stephen King, sports and horror. It's a lot of fun. You won't want to miss it. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me in our Brooklyn Bureau, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. And look, as referenced last week when we brought Joe Reed on, I know we get a little cavalier about, hey, how's cancer or whatnot? Last week was the first time in a while we were trading some relatively serious texts. So how are you doing? Feeling better? Give us a quick rundown of, of what you were facing. No, I mean, just I've been pretty banged up the last couple of weeks. And the good news is it's mostly side effects, not cancer. The bad news is the side effects are terrible. And when you mix uh, like clinical level fatigue and nausea and, you know, just a few other things like, you know, clinical dry mouth. No, I'm not that stoned. Um, it just adds up. And I, I mean, like I couldn't make it off the couch last weekend. There was one day though, that I'll take the hit for it. And this Brad is my wrap up. Like there's one thing to have nausea. It's another thing to set up a hammock and then go reading it while you're nauseous and then basically make yourself seasick. (laughs) And as I did that in a park in New York, I turned to Amy. I was like, this was a bad idea. I got to go home. So I spent last weekend on the couch watching endless psych episodes on Amazon Prime. So that was how I've been. But thanks for asking. I'm feeling a lot better. And, yeah, you, sound better. you know, ups and downs, man, like better side effects than the cancer. Yeah. Well, look, we were uh, it was one of those where you're you're sending me updates and I'm like, just take care of yourself, man. And you're like, oh, no, well, maybe we could tape tomorrow. I'm like, just take care of yourself. man. Yeah. And then <laughs> just, I'm like, I just threw up all over the bathroom. Like, we're out. So <laughs> I'm like, Put was, away. you know what? Cutest story ever was one night. I just like woke up with a start. Nothing was really wrong. But Wiley had come into our bed and Amy, when he does that, sometimes she goes to his bed and I just woke up suddenly and I didn't realize it, but he had just said to me, I'll go get mommy. And then Amy came in and I'd fallen back asleep. And she was like, Wiley said you needed me. And I was like, oh, that's really cute. No, I just kind of woke up funny. And he was like, 
I'll go get mommy to take care of you. That tells you how, how used to all this the kids have gotten, which is sad, but also very sweet. Listen to this transition. So you're saying he's the opposite of Gage from Pet Cemetery, Gareth? Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, poor segue to our guest this week. A little bit of a different spin on the world of sports culture that, that we cover. Michael Rothman is the editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound, great website that does a lot of really cool pop culture, entertainment, lifestyle coverage. He also hosts two of like my personal fave podcasts, The Losers Club. I would argue the quintessential Stephen King podcast, been going on for several years, Love the work they do on that. Also, Halloweenies, which started a few years ago, breaking down the work or the films of Michael Myers, then eventually Freddy Krueger. And this season, my personal fave of the genre, Jason Voorhees. So I reached out to Michael and I said, I've been wanting to talk about the role sports plays in the Stephen King universe and in the world of horror movies and the horror genre overall. Can I ask, because you and I texted a little bit about this and I didn't come up with much. For King, as a tease, because we have not heard this interview yet, uh, myself and your listeners, what did he come up with for King? I was I was pretty transparent that there's just not the uh, bevy of like Stephen King sports listicles I was expecting when I reached out right. to do this. I talk about some of the early characters that Stephen King created. Uh, Tommy from Carrie were like jocks who were also nice and so we talk about mm. like how stephen king was breaking the mold of just the dumb crazy jock we talk about um the role that sports plays or the role that the darker side of sports plays in books like needful things when you talk about the memorabilia that that people covet we talk about king's connection to baseball because you just can't not talk about king's connection to baseball some of the choices he's made to put you know, like a, a, a nonfiction New Yorker essay about his son's Little League season in Nightmare and Dreamscapes <laughs> or Nightmares and Dreamscapes. <laughs> also, Gareth, you will appreciate this. So once in a while, when you come to this show from somewhere beyond sports, we open the floor for you to talk about your relationship to sports. Michael is mm -hmm. a diehard Heat fan. And huh. I was like... I would love to hear about being a Heat fan and sort of the horrors, the good things and the horrors of that because he gets into loving the Pat Riley, Alonzo Mourning era Heat, embracing the Dwayne Wade era, and then all of a sudden, I'm my team is like the biggest villains in sports history. Everybody hates us. <laughs> it's a total circus sideshow. Uh, you know how does he? How did he deal with that whole era? And then candidly, we get into it. What did you think about LeBron leaving? Because for as much as everybody loved, loves to dunk on the decision and then like celebrate the return to Cleveland, I was like, hey, floor is yours, man. Do you have some beef with LeBron? <laughs> Just piece it out yeah, after yeah. the finals. And so it's a fun conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. We, we went deep. And then stick around after the interview. Gareth and I are going to do our top five Stephen King books. And I'm sure, Gareth, Dolores Claiborne's at the top of both of our lists, right? Oh, shit. Yeah, baby. Hey, I'm really intrigued. I just want to say one thing. I'm really intrigued by this interview because that was the first time I had heard the decision brought up. And I was like, oh, right, that. And I love that LeBron's done enough since then and grown up enough since then. And we all have grown up enough since then that the only people that still bring that up are like Colin Cowherd or El Prez or like Skip Bayless, like the people who just have a bone to pick with LeBron and now 
crapping on the decision just kind of makes you look like a loser, not LeBron. Like, he's done enough since then that it's just sort of like, eh, you were young, dude. You wanted to go to Miami. Take your talents down there. I don't care. We've all moved past it. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear what he says. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good time. And then uh, stick around. We will be back to distract you. I'm over here. You tell me if this is fair or unfair. I'm just being super honest. I still <laughs> yeah. consider the Heat to be an expansion team. I can't get it out of my head. I'm a child Oof. of like the 80s and 90s. When do I need to let this go? Uh, I think soon. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that they are. <laughs> I think you know it's obviously that they, you know, they're very new, fairly new still uh, yeah. within the league. <laughs> um, but I think that they've. Oh God! Between Pat Riley's management, uh, not to mention his coaching, um, some of the legendary players that have come in and out of those doors, like even beside, even aside from like LeBron James, I mean, you go back like Glenn Rice, uh, you go to Alonzo Mourning, uh, Tim Hardaway. I mean, these are some some of the best players I think, <laughs> obviously because I'm from Miami and I love the Miami Heat. Uh, but I, I think these are some of the you know the greatest players uh, to at least play some of the more modern basketball of the last 20, 30 years and. I, I just don't see them as 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 this uh, this younger team and this this newer team and this. Uh, I, I feel like they're almost like kind of in the, the you know the classic lore at this point. Um, having said that, I, I think you're not alone. Um, I think it's. <laughs> You know, I mean, it, look, I mean, I, I've been going crazy right now just because of NBA's Last Dance and everything, and NBA, ESPN's Last Dance. Um, and I don't think it was any secret that they pretty much snubbed the Heat in that. I mean, they play, right. you know, the Bulls played the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, why wasn't that in the documentary? And, like, you know, some of my friends were like, well, you know, there probably wasn't a lot of drama. But now, the more I think about it, it's like probably because they're not the legendary classic team that a lot of people, at least from South Florida, see it as. I mean, for me, it's it's I've, I I look at the Heat as such a um, an exception to the rule because you look at all the sports that are down in South Florida, and they all pretty much, for the most part, fail. I mean, like the Dolphins still have their um, uh, Miami Vice <laughs> uh, pink jacket, old school <laughs> fans that show up and tailgate and whatever, but even that's kind of waning and that team hasn't uh, no matter how much money they still keep pumping in and no matter how many Jimmy Johnson's they'll throw on that team, they'll still be like a whatever mediocre team. And, but the heat has always kind of been, like I said, the exception to the rule. Like I feel like they've, they've, they've been like a, a real professional sports team and they, 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 they've been put together so many times naturally. Um, and people can argue with, you know, the whole LeBron era, like until the, you know, until the league is over, but even oh, I, I that, plan like, to with you, you have... in about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, I, my, my thing is, I, I just think that they've they've managed to find a real steady footing in an area that is filled with transplants. But I could see your argument. I could see why you would say that. <laughs> yeah, and it's more like friendly trolling just because I, I think that if you grew up in that era and you remember their first few seasons, yeah, I think they are one of the more interesting stories in the NBA in terms of the phases yeah. they've had. And to me, I break it down as sort of there's the expansion Glenn Rice era. There's the Riley era, clearly Riley Morning, that whole thing. 
there's the Wade Shack championship run, the veteran team with Riley coming back to the bench, and then clearly you've got the like the big three, which was you know the Beatles. It, uh, yeah. th- knowing I may or may not be leaving some kind of micro subgenres out, but like, what is your favorite generation of the Heat? Oh uh, wow, um, it's really hard to say because my favorite player of the entire t- like entire history for the heat is Alonzo morning. Um, I'm a huge Alonzo morning fan. Um, so I want to say the late nineties and it was so much fun. Cause I mean, f- first off as much as, as entertaining as basketball has been over the last, especially the last 10 years, I think the odds are actually kind of, um, a headache, um, in certain ways. I just think that the, that you had a, a f- fewer personalities that compared to like the nineties, I think the NBA was still kind of finding its footing again, um, after this explosive nineties, but living in the 90s through basketball was – I don't think there's ever going to be, like, another era of sports for it. Like, I, it was just – it literally is, like um, – it was like Marvel. <laughs> it was like the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe or something like that unfolding. It was unreal. And so having a team that maybe wasn't as as, as great as, obviously, the Bulls, um, you know, or even Detroit uh, or, or, you know, even Indiana, like – or obviously Utah, like – they still like were able to put up a fight and watching, you know, Hardaway and Morning in those years was such a blast. And I and, and that's honestly what really solidified my um, position in loving um, the NBA over any other sports. Like I, I'm not a huge sports person. I, I love like I mean, I grew up um, I mean, because my dad's from New York. So, you know, being in Florida, like despite having the Florida Marlins who were actually winning um you know and they had the great team with like Gary Sheffield and Craig Cancel and all that stuff like I didn't care because like my dad would go see the Yankees or Mets games and that Mm -hmm. was it so I never really had that sort of constitution of sports and um and then also making more making matters more complicated was the fact that like my mom's side were Bills fans because we were we had family friend and Jim Kelly so I literally had no like backyard sports other than um, Miami Heat and so when Hardaway because I, I, I watch it when you know like as a young kid I remember when like Glenn Rice was in it and like you know they were still pretty like not great um, and they're young and they're you know this is they still had to wait until they get to the, like, like the Riley era and um, but when Hardaway and Morning came on that was a blast and that was really when I fell in love with just the game itself god I sound like David Stern but um <laughs> I, I, I I fell in love with the game um but uh, I I love that era and granted I would be lying if I didn't say I was a huge Jordan fan I mean I had I had the jerseys I had the shoes I had the figures and the posters and everything but knowing that my team had two players that I could look up to and um was a huge deal for me however having said that I am absolutely in love with Dwayne Wade and that uh, finals in 2006, um, which people still <laughs> give me shit over because yeah. of the free throws. Um, <laughs> Lots of free throws. <laughs> I literally, yeah, I, I know, I know. But I, he was so unstoppable in that series. And it was literally like watching, it was, it was an origin story. And seeing him just own that series in even beyond the free throws. Cause he had just, I mean, his jumper and it's just, there are just so many other amazing moments in that, that whole series. I still think that is my, um, one of my favorite moments. And I just remember being in Tallahassee, just like losing my mind and in, in my head that I was like, I cannot believe we're going to fucking win this. I cannot fucking believe this. And, um, and so, you know, and it was, it was really hard for me when 2010 happened because, I say that with an asterisk because it wasn't because we are obviously one of the best, we were the best team in the league, 
but I never really grew up with everyone hating the team. Like it was, we were kind of like the weird underdogs, even though that we were kind of bad boys in the late nineties. And we obviously had scuffles with teams like the Knicks and stuff, but I never really had that uh, experience of being like, Oh wow, everyone hates us now. Like what the hell? Like, and so, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, because if like, if Wade's 2006 was an origin story, then it becomes chronicle, right? Because you become the microwave villain that everyone learns to hate overnight, literally overnight after the, after the decision. And and that's one of the things I really wanted to probe is, what is that like? Because I've I'm grew up in Cincinnati, so I was, I'm like still a Bengals fan. No one cares about my franchise. I oh. moved to Chicago, embraced you know the Chicago teams and and the Cubs. You know they they're lovable losers. Everyone feels good when they win. Blah blah blah. I've never rooted for a team like the Patriots or the hand yeah. the Yankees and the and the big three Heat are up high on that list because of the way they came together. What was that like? when you became the epicenter of everyone's hate, not just in the NBA, but I would argue in North American or maybe global sports. (laughs) uh, This was, this is wild. So when they did the announcement, um, I'm, I actually live in Chicago too. So I'm like about, uh, this is my like 12th or 13th, 13th year living here. So I was living in, it was like 2010. I remember it was, uh, uh, early summer and, um, (laughs) and that was then the decision happened. And I was actually at dinner, at Lou Malinati's in Lincoln Park with um, one of my friends. He's, he's a doctor. He's a doctor now, but he's from Cleveland and he's a diehard Cavaliers fan. And we were literally sitting across from each other and um, with my ex-wife there. And um, and I'm watching on my phone like little updates coming in, and he was too. And I I actually didn't realize it. Like we were just we kind of just had met, but I had a, I knew that he was a Cavs fan, but I didn't realize that he was actually like that, you know, devoted. And I'll never forget just hearing about it and like not being able to say anything. I just like, I looked at the text and I was like, oh wow, he did choose Miami. Oh wow. And then like, I could see his face of defeat and like, it just became like, all right, we're not talking about it. Like <laughs> we're, we're definitely not going to talk about it. And it boiled over. Like we, it got like when he, like he would keep throwing like stuff at me and like all his friends would, uh, all, all our friends would just give me crap about it. And, um, I took the defense because I was like, look, this is like a team I've loved since I was little. And then everyone always turns because they were like, Oh, bandwagon fans. And I was like, Oh God. And so I like, I really got like defensive about it. And there are like definitely scuffles that were mostly fun and in jest, but there are some times on Facebook or like on socials or texts where we were like, all right, this is getting a little out of hand. Um, and, and so for me, it was exciting obviously to have you know, LeBron come, but at the same time, like, that hate and the the spotlight of everyone coming down on on them it was it was kind of over the top um and 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 i don't i don't doubt i don't blame like most people for thinking that because obviously the decision was ridiculous but in a sense it wasn't either like it's it's actually like kind of great narrative making you know narrative making like like there's so much like there's so much momentum rolling up that like I think what they did after that was ridiculous. Like I don't think they needed to have like a, a fucking concert in American <laughs> Airlines Arena. Not one, you know? not two, not three. Two. Uh, <laughs> and that was and, and it's honestly like I didn't even mind like because I like that sort of bravado I love. Like that that's one of my problems with like a lot of athletes today is that like you got to have that swagger, you got to have that sort of charisma. And that's what I loved about the three of them is that they, they are such good personalities. Like when they call them the Heatles, I was like, yeah, well they have personality and they're fun to watch. Like you can hate them, but this is entertaining. And the thing that, the only thing that really pissed me off about that era, um, there are two things. One was when they were absolutely flopping, um, 
uh, the 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 finals in the first uh, in 20, uh, 2011. Yeah, and they they got so cocky and they basically did the thing that everyone you know says not to do to LeBron, which is you know taunt. And they did like the fake cough next to Dirk, yep. and you know <laughs> the German giant went nuts and killed us. Um, and I broke my remote, I think that year, but I, um, I, cause I was just like, I can't believe they blew this, but, uh, that was, that was honestly like the lowest point, And I just couldn't, I was like, all right, now, I, now you're just feeding into the reasons why everyone hates us. And then I also just don't, I don't really like how LeBron handled, um, the, the exit for, for this one either. Um, you know, like I actually think that the way he handled leaving the heat was worse than how he leave, how he left Cleveland. Yeah, I'm glad um, you said that because I really wanted to give you the floor because one of the le- most underexplored parts of fandom is how everybody yeah. was like, hey, LeBron's coming home and you and, you, and the video mashups and he come in home and, and everyone's it's a feel good and, and they, it's SI puff piece and it's like, oh, he did it all yeah. the right way this time. And I was like, you can be pissed off he left the heat, right? You get in the arena when you sign and you're like I'm going to win 8 championships and then you lose yeah. and you and you slink out the door cuz I really think that whole era takes on a different color if he's still playing there or if he does four more years and they go to the finals 7 times. So how, how oh, did you how did you react to, to that to him leaving? I well, it's funny cuz like that last that last, you know, the last uh finals with the Spurs and the Heat um when that air conditioning game happened, it was like, I was like, all right, well, this is maybe looking come back. This is still kind of wonky. Like something's up. Like their energy is just not there. LeBron is exhausted. Um, I don't, I don't think they're going to win this series. And I don't think that he's going to, I think he's, there's going to be this whole fucking hoopla of like whether or not he's going to stay after this. And I remember after they lost and it was like pretty, it was like a miserable finals run for them. Um, I remember there was video that had come out and um, it was like Wade and LeBron had just gotten off a plane in Miami and someone had gotten footage like it was nearby on the airport and they were zooming in on their, their camera and it literally looked like a scene from Miami Vice. Like they were just like yep. standing outside their plane. <laughs> I know that and footage. Bo- I could just, it, and I just remember watching it and being like, oh God, like his body footage, like his body language, like Wade's body language is like, done it's defeat and it's like he knows that he, it's like the oh, same bye to a friend i was like oh god damn it and then all this stuff that happened in like vegas with him evading riley and then um kind of the the the, the stuff that he held over uh, like the mike Mil- the, the mike miller shit that was so dumb like you know like oh why'd you pull mike miller or trade him and it's like well okay well he was also like shooting threes like you know only occasionally and sparingly and could play maybe four minutes before he was exhausted like he was still trying to build a team around you and like granted like there are some dubious things that he that that Riley did in that last year um, that I, I I still don't think were I still think probably contributed to LeBron, but like I just felt that like the respect for the franchise that actually did get you rings and built this whole thing around you to just kind of walk away and ditch it and just because you lost that one finals and then go back to the Cavs like and the open arms that everyone had and being like oh this is great and like oh we're gonna totally forgive Dan Gilbert for acting like a racist idiot like I just <laughs> it drove me it drove me insane like I, I I actually I I had to stop watching almost for like six months I don't know it just it rubbed me the wrong way and I I don't I don't blame him because I mean look LeBron's gonna go chase where wherever is wherever he needs to go and we've seen that now. Um, especially with him going to LA, um, which I don't think anyone would have thought would be possible in 2014 when he left initially to go to Cleveland. 
soon. And, and for the folks who, who are tuning into this to hear us talk horror, we will move on there. I do want to ask you about the perception of Heat fans, because I have a soft spot for any fan base who gets, I think, overly um, uh, stereotyped by one or two incidents. So Philly fans with, you know, <laughs> oh, they booed sand or they threw batteries or whatever else. I, yeah. I really feel bad for Heat fans like yourself who are passionate about the team who have to hear what awful fans they are because a handful of idiots left Game 6 in that first Spurs series. So how do you sort of weather the snickering and the condescension you must get <laughs> from other fan bases, even though I, I'm sure there are plenty of really dedicated followers of the team in Miami and across the country? I, uh, I I mean, I either pull up footage from, you know, the countless <laughs> parades that we've had. I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people forget uh, how important, you know, the Hispanic community and you know, Latin American community is down there and how devoted they are to the area and how much that defines Miami. I think that there's this perception and they're not it's not a wrong perception that there's less, a lot of New Yorkers and, um, you know, <laughs> uh, conservatives that, you know, that, that move down there and they're, you know, the wealthy elite that kind of. Uh, you know, take over the city, and th- and that's not wrong because that it, that does exist down there. But there is a huge, 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 huge. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it's just a uh, God like um, it's like a cultural mecca down there. And like you know, you go in you know like neighborhoods like Wynwood, um, or uh, Little Haiti, Little Havana. Like there are so many great neighborhoods that you walk through there and you just see all of the, the the Miami Heat like like the logos like the names the players the numbers like murals and like that's the shit that you don't see and and like that's the stuff that you never really like hear about unless you actually like watch like unless you're a Heat fan and you watch like you know the 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 footage that's being played before the games like locally and um and if you watch like little documentaries that people make online on YouTube and stuff like that and like you get into like there is a huge core fan base there and that's what I was saying before it's like you don't get that in a lot of other sports down there like you you might have in the 80s with the Dolphins but you certainly don't anymore and the 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 Panthers have never been able to hold on to their fan base because every they go they ebb and flow is wor- worse than the the Marlins and the Marlins have a brand new stadium for Christ's sake so it's <laughs> I'll speak, you know, fully transparently. Like, I was done with the game. I I remember sitting there in Game Six and being like, "Oh, it's over. It's done. It's gonna be. We're fucked. We're. This is it. We lost the game again. We lost it. And like, it. it the finals is over. And I had to go in the other room and I had to go make a drink. And all of a sudden, <laughs> like, I start seeing some action, like some some some, some movement. And I'm like, oh wow. Okay. Okay. But I mean, I'm guaranteed. Like, I I don't know if I would have sat there because I think I would have been so frustrated. But I, I don't know. There's a lot of things I could pull up, like footage-wise, that yeah. from other teams that I'd be like, "Yeah, we're not the only ones." So, well, um, look, but it, it was embar- It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing, especially <laughs> the footage of people trying to get back in. I know that that's was like, oh part. god, that was really Ugh. that was a tough beat. But I, again, I have a lot of sympathy because it's just one incident, and a lot of those fans might have been corporate fans. You know, you never know. I've been as someone who's been to those yeah. high high profile games, like for work. It's like it's a different crowd. It's a different environment than a regular season. You know, whatever. Um, oh God, yeah. yeah. So as we transition to the scary stuff, let me just one final thing: Who haunts your dreams more, Alan Houston or all those uh, those Dirk and Jason Terry uh, outside jumpers? Ooh, I think it's got to be Dirk. Um, <laughs> Dirk, Dirk still is. First off, just him as a presence scares me. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. Uh, he is just a, a force of nature, um, and. He's one of the, the he's one of those like players where you kind of have to uh, respect him because he's so like militant 
Um, and he, you know, his upbringing was very similar to Jordan's in the sense that he was drilled into like making shots like, you know, hours on hours and end as, you know, as a kid and in, in his teens and stuff. So you respect this game, but at the same time you fear it because you're like, oh man, when he switches on, it's all bets are off. And that certainly was my, my biggest nightmare was, um, when he did that and it was, there was no stopping him. I mean, especially like because of his length, um, and his speed, like he, he's just, he was, he was literally LeBron's worst enemy. Um, yeah. so for me, yeah, I, I think about that. If I, whenever I think about like the early 2000s, like 2010s, I, I, his, his fucking face comes up and, <laughs> and Mark, Mark Cuban sitting there and, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> no, so no, definitely. This is fun. That is what I wanted to do is kind of like get a, a, a inside look at the Heat fans' ups and downs uh, over the years. Look, I'm a big fan of your your work on uh, in the horror world. Really like uh, the Losers Club. Really like Halloweenies. So I wanted to have you on to talk about. I've been just kind of circling around. What can we do with uh, on this show with the role that kind of uh, sports plays in the Stephen King universe and horror overall? Let me start here with an essential question. If you have seen it, where do you stand on Stephen King's This Is Sports Center commercial? Have you <laughs> are you aware of this? No, I have not heard about this. this okay. Is... It's on YouTube. It's basically like they're reading highlight packages and they're like all this it's it's not one of the best ones. It's it, it all of a sudden zombies come up or other stuff and then they go back into a cubicle and it's just Stephen King <laughs> writing the um you know writing the stuff on an old typewriter or writing the highlight packages or whatever. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, that good is, fodder for a, for so a future losers club. You guys should do a, do a review of that a performance of his. For the most part, we write all our own material. Occasionally, we have to bring in a ghostwriter. I like it. It's good. You like it? Yeah, great. Good. That's it then. Uh, one thing. I know Boston beat New York last night, but I think it was more because of the Red Sox clutch hitting than than New York's lineup. You know, being possessed by the demon. Oh, and. No players with telekinetic powers either, please. Oh my God! Yeah, that's great. I, I actually did not know that. He, I, I mean, because I know he's a huge fan. Um, but and that totally makes sense. Oh, so it's it's uh, it was like the old campaign where they had just like people working in the office. Yeah, built, that's uh, right. That's right. Okay, I yeah. love that. Yeah, that that campaign is genius. Uh, man, I did not realize I had one for Stephen King. Because uh, we actually did a film festival here in Chicago a couple of years ago, and I was like pulling together as many like old weird footage clips that i could find and i found like old library commercials and all this other stuff but oh, this would have been so good um <laughs> wow this is this is this is hilarious and like um it's funny because i i always love uh, when we we used to we do this section on the uh the podcast or we did i don't know if we're doing it anymore called needful tweets and um we basically pull up his twitter account and like we we started out with doing everything but then we realized that like we nobody wants to hear us talk politics so we're like yeah. okay <laughs> so like gotta skip that that's about 90 percent of his twitter and then eventually we started getting like guff for like doing his sports stuff because he is just avid sports fan. So he'll just like go off and talk about baseball and none of our listeners want to hear him talk about ba- like us talk about baseball, even though we can, cause one of my co-hosts is like a diehard Cubbies fan. Yeah, dude, so, I'm in, I'm in, um, go for it. <laughs> right. So it's so funny watching like, 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 you know, watching him like, cause he's just such a diehard, uh, like baseball fan. I mean, like every one of his books, for the most part have reference like to the Red Sox um, to yeah, pretty much the Red Sox. I feel like that's out of all the teams. You don't really ever hear anything about the Celtics or the Bo- or, like any Boston sports other than just the yeah. Red Sox. And he's, it makes sense. Like, you know, he, 
he I think he did he throw I think he threw the opening pitch for the the 2004 uh, season. Well, where, he's got a whole book about it, like that faithfully book that he co-wrote about that season. Have you have you dived into that? At all? I mean, I know you haven't done anything on the podcast about it, but is that something you've read? I have not read that. Um, and I, I want to, um, we're doing everything chronologically. So like, yeah. and, and anytime I get a window to read a new book, it's usually like two weeks top. So like, I'm always just picking up like, I don't know, a fucking magazine or something like that. But like, um, cause I'm just so fried from reading, but, uh, they, I, I, I am excited to read that because I still think it's, um, that whole season is literally like a Stephen King story. Like, I feel like, you know, when the Red Sox were down against the Yankees in that playoff run, it's as if someone, a diehard fan was sitting there, a, a weird, creepy guy came up and sat next to him and was like, oh, hey, want a hot dog? And he's like, sure, want the game? <laughs> he's like, not as much as I want this team to win the World Series. And then like, how about I can make that happen? And and then <laughs> it literally just as if like the devil came and turned everything around because it, it's so, it's still such an anomaly that they were able to do that. Um and so it, it's fitting that King would write about it because I feel like he probably, I imagine he feels very similar of just like, how the hell did this happen? <laughs> because right. it was against all odds. And, you know, um, I, I think, now not to sound like a stalker, I was looking at your Instagram in prepping for the, uh, for the interview, and I think you're reading Nightmares and Dreamscapes right now, correct? Yes, I am, yeah. Because yeah. there's that New Yorker essay in there, Head Down, which is a pretty like straightforward chronicle of his son's little league season in like 1989-90 and i'm just fascinated like in a series of short stories like that why do you think he included that nonfiction? and look as you all have talked about in your show there are times when in certain anthologies he does have more of a straightforward drama or you know um, oh totally people who who are fans of things like Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption or whatever mm-hmm. know he can write many different types of uh, uh, of things but I did think that was a curious addition there and, and I was wondering if you've gotten to that yet or how you feel like it fits within the book yeah so I, I have not gotten to the, the to that one I, I was aware of it though um, and I think that it's interesting first off that it's nonfiction because usually like he's definitely welded in like as you were mentioning like with Rita Hayworth and all like different seasons is uh was like you know his novellas collection that kind of proved that he could uh flex other muscles other than horror um but even going back to like night shift which is his first uh short story collection um and what i think is probably the best gateway stephen king book uh they there's some real um dramatic works in there like there's one called last rung on the ladder that is Mm -hmm. just some of the most beautiful prose that he's ever written um so he he does like to pivot in these collections. So I, I imagine at the time <laughs> it, it's early nineties. It's, 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 he's already admitted to like, I mean, he literally talks about in the forward, how he worries about losing ideas and, um, and how he felt like after misery or around misery around the, Oh no, not misery, dark half that he was like, Oh shit, how am I going to keep coming up with stories and cranking them out? So maybe there was a part of him that was like, well, I have this that I wrote about Owen. <laughs> um, <laughs> right maybe I should just put this in here, pad this out. I've already had dramatic works in my short story collections before. Um, why not? And, and, and I kind of like that because my favorite thing about the podcast and about doing all the Stephen King stuff is trying to get into his head, like psychologically, like I like, I like the lore and I like all the connections and the King's dominion and stuff like that. But I love just really trying to understand where his head was at at the time. And I imagine if he put that piece from Owen in there, with Owen in there, there's a 
I, I imagine a lot of it also had to do with his recovery uh, because he was coming uh, over from being like alcoholic, cocaine head, uh, or cocaine addict, um, <laughs> and a cocaine head. Uh, it sounds like a Silent Hill character. Yeah. But, uh, no, I. Um, so yeah, he. I, I. I wonder if there was like something like him like uh, finding peace of sorts uh, by by doing that. Um, yeah. But I'm excited to read it. Because I, I like, love I love when you can see a different side to him. Yeah, like, Cocaine Head is my favorite Cenobite. When you eventually get to Hellraiser mm. on uh, on Halloweenies. Oh look, look, yeah. Okay, the Tom <laughs> Gordon book. I have not read the Tom Gordon book. I'm more fascinated by the choice of the player because if this he was writing about the Heat, I, it would be a little bit like uh, the girl who loved uh, Antoine Walker. You know, like not someone who <laughs> yeah. had a long yeah. run with the team, not like a Nomar type figure. Do you like it better as it's aging? with a more obscure player? Or do you feel like if he could have a redo there, he would have chosen someone more entwined with the culture of the team? I, I kind of like that it's like a more of a deep cut um, because for that very reason, uh, for this very reason, like the fact that we are like having that discussion because it's like, it is a very like, wait, what? Like Tom Gordon, <laughs> like why, why would you choose Tom Gordon? Um you know, like, why Why wouldn't you go for, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, granted, it, I, don't, I can't remember what era it's in. I think it's... it's Late in, 90s, uh, right? Like, the Pedro, 90s, kind of the Pedro yeah. era. Yeah, so, like, why, why wouldn't you go for one of the more headliner players? But I, I think a lot of that also is, no pun intended, like, inside baseball for him, where he just, he knew the team um, and wanted to kind of... Uh, I don't know, put in some more of his trivia in there. Like, he does that all the time. Like, There'll be situations where, like, literally, just a character is like sitting on a porch listening to a game, and you could tell, like, right. he literally like found out what game was playing that day, and um, and was trying to, you know, trying to get some sort of historical accuracy to it. Um, my co-host who's not on, actually, sorry, my co-host oh, who's not it. on has said uh, the entire Tommyknockers, as he told me, is just people sitting around on a porch talking about the Red Sox while one of them is becoming an alien. <laughs> so I don't, I don't yes. know if that's true, but I, I got a good chuckle out of it. Yeah, no, but it's, it's totally, it's, it's totally true. I mean, he, he does, he just loves it. And like anytime that he can wield in his own pop culture that he just cherishes and loves, he's going to do it. Um, he, he's gotten a little more ostentatious about it. Um, like his last book, if it bleeds, which is great. I loved it. Um, has like, so many um blatant references that you could tell like were him going through google um and wikipedia and like <laughs> he because he writes about it's like the there's a uh, novella in there um called mr harrigan's phone and uh, it takes place like right when the dawn of the first iphone so it was like late aughts and whatever and a lot of his references aren't wrong but like when he's like blatantly talking about it's like you know, Jay Z was talking about New York and his empire state of mind. And it's just like, <laughs> all right, well, what did you do? Like, Google 2009 in music and, like, yeah. you know, found the big single. Like, you just, you could tell little things like that. And, like, you know, when he has kids in the institute from last year, like, talking about music, they're like, oh, I, you know, that Rihanna song was just b bouncing in the background or whatever. And it's just like, oh my God. Like, it's not as natural as it was in, like, the 70s and 80s when you could tell, like, he had a real personal uh, kinship to it. So, um, but I love it. I love it when he can, when he can bring that in there because he, and he clearly loves baseball to the point where like it's it's been such a huge factor on so many stories. I mean, even like something like Doctor Sleep where they have like the baseball boy and like that harrowing the the harrowing scene and that it's like one of the grisiest deaths that he's written in the last few years. Um there are a lot of play like I mean a lot of players uh that are like a lot of um uh, characters in the past where they talk about their own sports upbringing um and how they played college sports. Um 
you know, you could tell like, you know, he's from small town America. Like, of course he's going to love the, right. the, the go-to small town America sport. So, um, I just love how much it means to him. Like anytime you could find little bits of himself in there, it's, it's the best parts for me. One of the things um, I find fascinating with his work, his early works is how he broke the mold with some of his jock high school kind of, uh, characters. So I, specifically I'm thinking about like Tommy, I think in Carrie, um, is yeah. it, is it Dennis and Christine who both are, are sort of, yeah stereotypical could have been bad guys like really bad guys who who kind of are the impetus for the the villainy that takes place or they're they're feeding into it and they're and yet they're not and on your show i know you've talked quite a bit about tommy especially being one of your your more cherished like sort of minor figures in, in his books what do you what do you think that says about his ability to really come up with original characters who don't just feed into silly sort of archetypal caricature yeah, but that, that that's one of his strongest suits too. Is just being real. Um, because I mean, as much as we want to like love and believe like in the John Hughes movies and the archetypes that come out from like the '80s of all the slashers, there they're not really uh, faithful to reality. Um, you know, speaking personally, like I was a, a you know a portly heavy set kid growing up. Um, I, I was on the swim team, but I you know was just lampooned on it. Um, but even though I was kind of on the fringe and, you know, would much rather watch horror movies and, you know, and not be really all into sports and stuff like that. Some of my, most of my friends were athletes. Like they all, like all my friends growing up, like either played on teams and were the quote unquote jocks, but they had a heart to them and they were really smart and they were really fun and like, you know, really comical. And they weren't really, you know, they weren't dickheads to their girlfriends. Like they were actually really nice people. And, um, you know, and so one of the things I love about his books is when he does actually give those characters a chance and they don't, they are a little more nuanced than the, oh yeah, you know, I'm just going to shove this kid in the locker and, and, you know, beat him up. Like even the bullies that aren't, you know, the jocks, he does a good example of that. Like, I mean, he, he, he always finds ways to, 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 to cut into this, the, the soul and, you know, granted they are, they're just plainly evil characters in his books i'm not going to dismiss that like you know henry bauer is just absolutely evil but there are layers to it and you can find out why they are evil or you find out the the you get some sort of um clarity or some reason and he does that with jocks and i think like like tommy is probably his, his best example not only because it was his first book but this is a character that by all means should have been an evil mean character in any other book he probably would he probably would be but he's the most sympathetic character um, in the book and maybe in King's dominion, um, because he's so innocent and like, he's just trying to do the right thing. Um, and I, and I, and I have to believe that like not every athlete out there does, you know, like they're not all, you know, ego driven, uh, folks. Like they, they do try to do the right thing. There are, you know, they, they do have hearts of gold for, you know, for the most part, uh, or try to. Um, and so I kind of like that, that he was able to do that. And like, I think he, um, you know, Dennis is a great example too. Cause, uh, as you mentioned, like from Christine, cause like he is like the, the, the Johnny Depp, um, uh, or like the rod even from like nightmare on Elm street almost like he, he should be that kind of like, you know, kind of doofus jock, but he's not like, he's actually like probably one of the smartest characters in the book, um, is able to res- like resolve things. He ha- like has like a good relationship and that, that actually his relationship with Arnie, I think is one of the more realistic teen relationships in mm-hmm. Stephen King's works because that, those are the type of relationships I saw and had in high school for sure. Like you, you had the kid that, um, 
was kind of down on his luck. And then you had the one kid that maybe kind of could bridge the gap between the popular kids and, you know, the quote unquote underground. And that that's what he did. And like that, that that's like, you don't see that often, especially in eighties movies. I, I don't know. Like it, it, cause sports, like you said, it's, it's kind of like a background undercurrent in a lot of his stories. It's not like it's the central sort of thing or, or the horror takes place around. I mean, he hasn't written like little leaguers versus monsters. <laughs> no, um, no. Uh, yeah. I will say another one that kind of pops to me though, is needful things because you've mm-hmm. got the darker side of the sort of fan experience coveting what they love about sports. You've got, I think it's Brian Wright with the, uh, the Koufax baseball card and w- would he be yes. willing to sort of trade yeah. a piece of his soul for that? You've got, uh, Danforth who is, um, and I liked Needful Things growing up. I know it's not one of his more celebrated books, but I I have a soft spot for it. But it's a blast. Yeah, it's such a, it's such Danforth a blast. like getting that like horse racing set and like you know it kind of shows or expo- kings exploring like people who will do anything to get an edge to win. What do you think yeah. that are, are there either within that book? What what do you think he's trying to say there? Like all things in life, like too much of anything is bad, and you know I think that King's really old school in that sense, um, and. I feel like with Needful Things especially, he does try to show just how any indulgence could be poisoned. Um, but I mean, with Danforth especially, it's just, <laughs> that it doesn't get more literal than that. Like, yeah. I mean, he's, it, 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 what's interesting of that is that like, you know, that was just like a little toy game. Um, and there is an innocence even to that as much as that whole sequence is just like, ensconced in malice um Mm -hmm. you know especially with what happens to his wife and everything too uh, which is just one of the more sad moments of that book actually but um yeah so i i think he in that sense he's he's definitely showing like uh the evil side of sports because there is like i mean i i mentioned before how i got in little spats with like you know my friend who was a Cavs fan and like you know and i'm a heat fan and like we were friends and some of the lowest moments have just been us like just kind of saying the shittiest things to ourselves because of a, a, a sport that neither of us are playing personally. Um, and <laughs> we're just watching it. Um, I, I, like, I always think of the Julian Casablanca's line that's in, um, 11th dimension, his solo single. And he's like, you know, um, America, we hate each other in the name of sport. And like, um, and that's kind of what sports does in a way. Let me hit you with a couple lightning round things on King real quick. How about this? Sure. Better Bachman, sports event the long walk or the running man <laughs> that is a great question <laughs> uh i think i think to watch the running man would be yeah. um i think i think um for betting obviously the the long walk um it's just such a a brutal uh, betting match and like I, I think that if oh god that's so sick to think about but um I, I think like in terms of uh, actually watching it, I think it would be a lot like NASCAR where you're just like, all right, when are we just tell me when the ending, <laughs> when it starts getting close to the ending or whatever, like, but with, with running man, like, I feel like it would be like the most entertaining reality show because you're getting these like tapes that, that he's sending in and you're like, Ooh, what's, what's going to be the next update? Like, Ooh, where, where, what's the helicopter? Uh, you know, where, where is he at now? And like, there's a lot of, there's stakes and there's, there like suspense, but, um, in terms of a better book, certainly the long walk. Yeah, like I think yeah. the long walk is one of his one of his classics that nobody really talks about. Um, you are so, a noted yeah. critic of the Running Man as not a not one of his finest pieces. 
Um, okay, yeah, let me, no. <laughs> let me hit you with this. Uh, I loved the, your discussion on the raft, and especially the idea of just dumb, dumb hotties on this raft versus this lake monster. You can't get any more of a of a dumb hottie than Ryan Lochte. So if if he's on that That's raft, yeah. does he does he actually beat it? Okay, so this is what would happen. So it would be similar to almost like the character in the actual story. Um, Ryan Lochte is going to talk a lot of shit to to the monster, <laughs> um, and right before he jumps, the the, <laughs> the thing catches his foot and drags him through the um, the wood. Um, I think I think he easily beats the monster if he gets in the water, um, because the thing that always drives me nuts, and I'm a swimmer, so. Um, what kills me is there are three things, especially in the story and also in the creep show two uh, segment. One, he takes way too time, to- way too much time staring at the girl that obviously he <laughs> yes. pretty much sexually assaulted. Uh, so he deserves to die. But um, in this in, in this situation, but he he he's like literally staring at her. Well, it's like already like all right. Well, the, the thing's busy with her. Like you need to just start swimming. But then he swims above water. Like no, you get your head in there and you just. Go, go, go. Like you, you're slowing yourself down insanely by like having your head above the water while you're, while, while you're swimming. And so that every time I watch it, it drives me nuts because I'm like, you would have been at the shore. And then to not walk away from the shore, like you're on that shore, you get out. Like you don't even like it just it, it kills me every time because I'm like, if you would have just ran to the car, you would have been fine. But right. um I love I love that 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 story and I and I like to imagine now Ryan Lochte because I'm a huge Phelps fan so um, the the idea of Ryan Lochte just being like talking shit and then getting caught would just be <laughs> just a, oh God. would would be very funny. Uh, well, no, what, Stephen yeah, King, no. notorious reader of fiction at sports events. Where do you stand on bringing a book to a game? Uh, I, I'm for it. Um, they're definitely especially of baseball. Um, there are long stretches where I, I mean, I've been to Cubs games where it's been like five hours. It felt like it was like five or six hours, if not longer. And you just get in stretches, especially when there's that, that if there's a lull in like the third inning and you're like, yeah. Oh God, this is never going to end. Like, I don't want to leave because we're still early on in this game and anything can happen. Um, and I paid money, but at the same time, it's like, all right, I'm going to pull my phone out a little bit and, and, and play on the, you know, play on this. So like, I'm, I think it's, I think baseball is good. I think it's kind of impossible to do that in basketball. Um, cause it's so fast and everything turns unless it's like a, just a total out outright, just, they blew them out of the, the, the game and it's like 40 point lead or 30 point lead. Um, in that case, just go home. Um, the, especially if it's like in the fourth quarter, cause it's like, that's not, this is not going to happen. Um, but, and definitely not football. I mean, if it's it, like all the ones that are like the real big, huge contact sports, like I don't see how you could read during it, but if it's baseball, it's one of those nice summer afternoons, the breezes, you know, rolling through, you have a right. beer, you have some, uh, some peanuts. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I, hell, I brought my, <laughs> I brought a novel to my graduation cause it was so long. So like, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think it's fine. I, I, I think it's good. It's just as, just as long as it's not his own book. Cause that's right. That, yeah. That it's like the wearing really the lame. <laughs> yeah. It's like PCU, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, um, now look, exactly. <laughs> really generous with your time. Let me just cl- close. I, I do want to just shout out. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Halloweenies. I'm a big fan of like oh, all those nice. kind of mainstay 80s um, horror franchises. I'm so glad you came back with uh, the, you know, the Friday the 13th as they are my favorite. Now, I know you're a Halloween lover since uh, your, your early days, correct? That's your, <laughs> yeah, you're still yeah. the pinnacle of the series. 
Ah, you know, I, I I think it has the best first film. Um, sure. But I I think the best franchise overall was A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh um, yeah. But surprisingly, that wasn't a fun season. Like it was it was kind of we got a little bored towards the end. Um, I think a lot of us were just fatigued because we went all in on the Halloween season the, night, the year before. But this year, the Friday Thirteenth has been a blast, and like this, I forgot how much I love rewatching these movies. I think this might be. I think we've talked about it on the pod, but. It's easily the most rewatchable series or franchise out of the four. I'd like the big four, big three. Um, so I, I, I've been loving it. And like we're going into the final chapter territory. And I, I can't wait because I love that movie so much. Yeah. Um, and so w- which of the famous or I guess I would say infamous scenes in like like sportsish scenes do you think is is the more comical i think of the two that pop out to me are in jason takes manhattan the sort of boxing match on the roof which is ridiculous uh-huh. but yeah, fun which is insane yeah and then in um, elm street 4 which is a movie that i know you you like i, I actually enjoy that one it's up near the top of my list if you were going to rank yeah. um horror sequels from from those three big franchises but that karate scene where he's fighting the air <laughs> it's like the invisible I know. Which of those do you prefer? Because they're both ridiculous and yet they're both so much fun. I um I love uh Andres Jones and so and I love that character because he reminds me of uh from Nightmare Four because I, I he reminds me so much of uh JD from Hit Heathers, which is I, I, I don't know how I didn't realize this, but I guess it was before they actually filmed it before Heathers came out. So I was like, wow, all right, so you didn't rip it off. But um so I love his character and I love the story behind it because they, they had run out of budget. And so <laughs> they were supposed to have this elaborate, huge dream sequence where he falls asleep on the toilet. And then there's like a, a an elevator and they kind of start that off in the sequence. But then, it, you know, he ends up being in this room where he's just fighting nothing. But I still think it works. Like people kind of roll their eyes. It's definitely like the mo- the least impressive uh, visual effects sequence that happens given that movie because it's just a, a nonstop roller coaster of blockbuster effects. But they still do really well with it. And like, I, I kind of like, I like how dreamy it is. It's, it's definitely offensive <laughs> in a way, uh, slightly <laughs> leading on stereotypes, but um, I coming off of, you know, love for karate kid. It, it, there's something fun about it, but Oh my God, I, that sequence from Jason Tans- takes Manhattan where the guy just gets his head knocked off is just that li- it literally looks like an action figure commercial. It's, it's wild. Yeah, although I, I'm trying to think of some other sports stuff. I'm like, uh, but I mean, if we want to talk about one of the most legendary, uh, I guess this is a very loose sports connection. But in the Halloween novel, they mentioned that Bob was a basketball player for the Haddonfield Huskers. So mm. the, technically, you could say the basketball player's death um, with the cheerleader, uh, you know, Linda up, upstairs there's some sports connection there. And like that sequence with Myers pinning him is still one of the most iconic pieces of horror ever. Um, so I guess you could almost make a loose connection to that one. I'm trying to think if there's any, well, the most, baseball. the I most guess... famous horror scene in, in sports history is the Catwoman Halle Berry versus Benjamin yeah, Brad. Oh, <laughs> right. I mean, that counts oh, as a horror movie, God. right? Yeah. Yeah. You could, yeah, you could, you could make that for sure. <laughs> um, 
Oh, I just revisited that, revisited that recently, and it's like, God, could, could it, the, the early 2000s were just such a miserable time. I know. Um, Amazing Spider-Man has really a really bad. bad one, too, where he, you know, Andrew Garfield, like, shatters <laughs> a backboard, yep. and everyone's like, oh, wow, interesting. And it's like, dude, if that I happened know, in my school, like, they build a statue for it. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, th- this is another really good one that I, I love growing up that, w- that seemed a little more realistic to me. Um and that I revisited a couple years later and realized there's no way kids would be able to jump this high is Three Ninjas. Uh, oh, when yeah. um, when they do the 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 uh, which no horror ties to that one, but like I just love like I remember as a kid being like, man, that would be awesome. Like win the girl and you know beat the bully and but then like you the kids are like literally jumping almost over the hoops. Like it's it's insane. Um, but I remember thinking that was like so realistic at the time. I was like, well, all I got to learn is karate and I'll be better at basketball. But um, I'm trying to think if there's any other sports like from the big horror. Um, I mean, you could make a case that like, you know, the famous sort of archery scene in the first Friday the 13th, but all that's oh, like summer yeah. camp sports. I was honestly surpri- surprised when I started researching this, like there weren't more listicles of just endless, you know, oh, sports in this movie and this movie. And it's like, you know, it, it really doesn't exist in the way that you might think. Oh, I have one. I have one and I can't believe I forgot. This is a favorite, not really horror, but there are clearly horror elements involved. Teen Wolf with the the the, sure. the basketball game. Yeah. Yeah. But again, more of a comedy than than a, a than a horror movie. Does Sandlot count? Like there are distinctly for for young ch- kids, I mean that's not a horror movie, but like the 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 dog is legitimately a terrifying presence in the yes. movie for a huge piece of it. And I it, you could make a case that that's a little gremlinish in terms of being a formative scary you know mm-hmm. thing to be watching when you're a kid you know i i agree 100 percent. I, I remember seeing it with my aunt and then her dropping me off and i ran to the house because i was so worried that there was going to be like a cujo type dog um <laughs> coming after me uh, I, I think it's genuinely scary. I mean, I think what's great about the Sandlot is that it it taps into what we all think as kids is like it's just the you know everything's larger than life, and that whole sequence where you know like the forever sequence, but it's like in black and white, and you see literally like the huge dog paw that like is like the size of like a I don't know Jaws from Universal Studios. But um, I I love that because like as a kid we laugh, but then you think about it. And you're like, man, if I was Benny the like the Jet Rodriguez, and I'm in that sequence, and the dogs chasing me are all around town, that is like legit terrifying. Like that's terrifying. Yeah. And especially when you have nowhere to run to, like, uh, like I, it definitely hit me as a kid. So I, I, I could see that being lumped in. <laughs> For sure. Well, look, you've been super generous with your time. I'll tell everybody: go listen to the Losers Club, listen to Halloweenies, read uh, Consequence of Sound, and root for the Heat. I think we will get basketball yes. <laughs> again. Uh, give me your 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 ten second prediction on where the Heat net out this year. Uh, you know, it's they were four. I think it was the, the was the last. They were the first in their. I think they're the first in their division and the the fourth in the conference. I feel like they could have made it at least to the second, if not maybe the, the Eastern Conference Finals. But I mean. It was going to be the Bucks that are going to go to the finals uh, from the e- the the East anyway. Um, I feel like so. I feel like it probably would have been what Bucks and Clippers maybe like yeah or Lakers in, in, the, in the finals this year yeah or the Lakers yeah because I feel like LeBron was starting to turn on after especially after what happened with like with Kobe Bryant I feel like he was kind of trying to take the the, the season into heart but um, I don't know I'd love it if they can make it happen. <laughs> 
when the drama comes, gunshots go. Never been a dope boy, but I got a dope flow. Straight to your brain, how my fans feeling? Oh, okay, you know me for balling and making jump shots, but I be moving the crowd like a honey gunshots. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things, and then we tell them they're being a locker room distraction, get back to watching game film. That is ridiculous. So on this show, we celebrate distractions by letting you know what's distracting us. And with Michael Rothman joining the show this week, you know, we had to get into Stephen King because Gareth, I don't know how much we've talked about Stephen King on the show, but it's kind of our jam. That's kind of how we became friends, right? Like just reading a ton of Stephen King together in like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I think I started in sixth, seventh grade. And so like, I think we might be moving our, I think honestly, Brad, if I remember it was in fifth and sixth grade, I know sixth well, grade. I, I got to know you in sixth grade. In sixth grade, you started reading Jaws. And then that opened the floodgates to, quote unquote, more adult horror and genre fiction. And then once Stephen King took hold, which was sort of sixth, seventh grade for me, I mean, that was it for a few years. Because he, well, frankly, because he wrote enough that it could take care of. But it also kind of blew away all that, like, childhood I'm going to read about baseball endlessly, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I remember seventh grade, there was some kind of a reading kind of page accumulation competition. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. just going to the, like a used bookstore. It was like uptown Oxford and just buying all those books in paperback and just devouring them for like a month. Yep. That's when I got through it. That's when I got through um, you know, Shining, like all those, all those different books. I just kind of like binged all at once. And you'll see this in our picks because I'm much like the Simpsons. I'm someone who kind of had an end point with my Stephen King fandom. Like in the mid nineties, I can just distinctly remember being like, Oh cool. A Stephen King books out. Um, okay. <laughs> like- yeah. Yeah. I will say this. I picked it back up in the last few years. I have not read any new Stephen King, but I either reread stuff I read when I was younger or have read holes in my Stephen King canon up to a certain point. But like 11, 22, 63, I'm like, that's a pre- interesting premise or under the dome. That's an interesting premise. OK, you know, and that's it. So. It's it's funny. The 11, 22, 63, I've heard is one of his better books, like not just recently, but maybe overall like i have a lot of friends or people in fact it might even be friends it might just be so boomer bro it might just be total podcasters that are saying this to me and i've conflated that to be like these are my friends now i haven't left the house in forever but a lot of people ride for that book i've not read it though nor it will not be on my top five list either all right so here's how we're gonna do it we're gonna go through our top five five to one number five i will start and gareth there were a lot of things on my list that I was kind of sad to drop off because I felt like they'd be more chic picks. But what our rules were for this was you had to have read the book. So like different seasons, yeah. for example, I never read. I would say it's arguably... I have never read any of his short story collection, right. which I now might do as a project. Well, different seasons is like the novellas that includes Apt Pupil, The Body, and, yep. and Shawshank, which I think most people would put on there just because of the prestige of those stories but mm-hmm. like i didn't i didn't read it so then the other rule was y- you had to not just have read it but like it was how you experienced it this is not just like a list of his greatest books we're not ranking what do you think is the greatest it's what were your favorite stephen king so keep that in mind as we go through here 
All right, number five. But by the way, I think that's the only Stephen King list that matters. Like, the quote-unquote best. There's so many at a certain point. You know the wheat from the chaff. And it's just the A-list, the B-list, and the remainders. Yeah. So. <laughs> number five for me is Pet Cemetery. I don't know if it made your hmm. top five. Did not. So I was debating between Pet Cemetery and Night Shift forever. It was like the last thing that I um the last thing that I cut out was Night Shift because the boogeyman I think is one of the best things he's ever written in terms of like mm-hmm. a story that just really scared the hell out of me. You've but written I, hard for that for our entire I, friendship. Yeah, absolutely. But I I can distinctly remember reading Pet Cemetery and and getting a sense of dread. Now it's a cynical book. It's a it's a tough hang. I need to reread it. <laughs> and and I think the movie neither movie has really done the idea of Pet Cemetery justice. But I can remember feeling scared by it in the moment. And I think that has to count for something. Because what's the whole point of reading Stephen King if you don't get scared? Right. There is no point. that You are doing <laughs> it to... No, I agree with you. You're doing it to feel something. And like, it, look, it can make you think, but you read haughty intellectual literature to like think and parse what it is to be human. I don't think that Stephen King lacks those things you read Stephen King to feel what it is to be human, to feel a sense of dread, a feeling of love, what to feeling of hearing that song at the right moment in a car, whatever. I mean, he's a very visceral writer. Okay, let me throw this out before I begin even. Do you have any Dark Tower on your list? I do. Okay, I don't. And it was one of those things like, I read the Dark Tower, the first one, when I was maybe too young to appreciate it. I would now like to try it again because I know so many people love it so much and I've gotten much more into the depths of genre as I've gotten older. I think that's one of the best things that happened in literature. I think guys like when we were young, I think King was viewed as sort of like fringy trash that you could buy at the grocery store. And then as we age, guys like Jonathan Lethem and Colson Whitehead started winning Pulitzers and National Book Awards. And then they were like, yeah, we love Philip K. Dick and Stephen King, and it's all good. And now you like see Stephen King in The New Yorker, and nobody flinches. Yeah, and you know I, what I, I mean. I, just to to push, I don't know that it was ever considered trash. It was just considered pop. It was like yeah, the equivalent yeah, 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 of yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was just the equivalent of he I'm is just saying popular trash fiction. To make my point, of course, yeah, being cooler, you know. But um, yeah, so uh, that's one reason I would like to revisit. Uh, some of the Dark Tower stuff, or even the first one, just to see what it is. Because the first line of it, I forget what it is, but I think it's just sort of like the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger chased after him. Like, it's just a great first line that I'm paraphrasing poorly. Um, But since you did it there too, I'm going to throw in for my two honorable mentions were um, Firestarter, just because I thought the image of her, (laughs) her push was so cool and it gets into so much of King's CIA paranoia um, that, that like what was the 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 CIA like LSD experiment or whatnot? That oh, Ultra, the name of. right? Or yeah, MK right? Ultra. Like Firestarter is his MK Ultra novel, and um, I just have again to your point. What was your experience reading it? I have a very visceral experience reading that. The same with one of his most hated books and self indulgent books, which was Tommy Knockers. And as I tweeted to somebody this past week. 
Tommy Knockers, I know, is hated, and it's sort of like cocaine personified in a book. But to me, like if you read that as an eighth grader and Bobby is transforming into an alien and she jumps on top of somebody and the alien tentacles come out of her vagina and wrap their hands up and trap them with her like sexual thrust. I'm telling you, bro, that is a fucking image that you will remember (laughs) as a 13 year old. okay? and so no amount of like late era revision and that book is terrible is going to sway me from the fact that the Tommy knockers is brilliant. And if you read it at the right moment, we'll stay with you the rest of your life. So, which brings me to my number five, which is his first book, Carrie. Um, I think I read it in eighth grade and it gave me a very twisted view of high school, but we lived in a small enough town. I think this is worth noting, Brad, that like most of the parallels between the Castle Rock and Maine of Stephen King and Oxford, Ohio, easily translated. And so reading this ultimate, like, the high point of high school literature and then going to high school in this small town was perfect. And I just loved reading Carrie for that reason. And so Carrie is my number five. Do you think Carrie is the best Stephen King movie adaptation? Well, it helps that you got a great director, Brian De Palma, but I think it's right up there. Yes. I also think the body, I mean, look, his short stories have a great, yeah, it's better tough. Track you got to take out stand by me and Shawshank though. The, the novels you're dealing with messier stuff. It's just big and sprawling, which is what makes them great, etc. I have no qual like Shawshank's a little overrated to me. Cause too many people say it's the best movie ever made, which I think I, I, I they said it best on the Canon when they were like, it's a handsome movie. That's yeah. a good way to describe <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption. But it's not, you know, whatever. It's Bill Simmons' favorite movie, which should say everything. But um, I think Carrie is way up there. I don't think Firestarter is. No, the best no, no. Movie. <laughs> All right. So, so my number four, the aforementioned Dark Tower. Okay. I read it in like two sittings. Like, I just remember Mm -hmm. so distinctly sitting on my floor. It was getting dark. And at that moment where you've been reading and it's now dark and you turn the light on and you're like, oh, man, like my eyes are fried. I have not put this book down. Now, I tried to go forward in the Dark Tower universe and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't even get through the drawing of, of three or whatever. But the first one as an experience, as a book that I experienced in the moment, I just remember being like, this is like a breeze. It's a blast. It's different than what I mm. know or expected from Stephen King. And it still was spooky enough versus like Eyes of the Dragon um, that I didn't feel like I felt like it was a left turn for him, but not a complete detour from what I wanted mm. at that time. After this conversation, I want to pick it back up and reread it. Yeah. So. And what he, he, he just really bang, over the years, he really banged the drum up. That was my best opening line. So like I kind of mm. drank that Kool-Aid. Yeah, I, I just paraphrase it something a little differently. So. It's the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. So, yeah. Oh, my God. That is a perfect setup for yeah, a novel. Really good. You know? <laughs> All right. So, uh, number four for you. My number four, I read for the first time this January, and it is The Dead Zone. Oh. And have you read that one? I have never read The Dead Zone, nor have I seen the movie. <laughs> I've heard the movie is actually a very good adaptation. And it, I saw that it was on HBO Go, which might now be HBO Max. I'm just totally lost. But whatever. 
Um, and so I was like, if this is that great an adaptation, I want to read the book before I watch it. The book was unlike anything I had read of King's. It felt very episodic um, throughout this, after the inciting incident. It felt, which made it feel a little choppier, or I wondered, was this supposed to be like a novella that got too long or a series of short stories? I'd be interested to hear how that laid out. But the ultimate adventure at the end of it involves this, the, the, the rise of this self-absorbed sociopathic demagogue politician. And it's very much in the Trump model, but written in 1981-82. And this guy has to take him on in a final confrontation. And you see it building throughout the book. And to read that in this moment was incredibly timed. I'm amazed that book hasn't gotten more coverage because of it. Like, rediscover the dead zone in the age of Trump. Let this be your New York Times article about this book. <laughs> it's, it's entirely appropriate and way slept on. So enjoy. All right. I'll be really curious to see if my number three made your list and it's needful things. It did not. That is but listen. I think my defense of Tommy knockers, that's my like close cult favorite. I'm not saying needful things is cult, but I've known that's a big favorite of yours. So rip into it. I read it. Like I think seventh or eighth grade. I'd have to double check that. It's one of the few Stephen King books. I still own. I have it in hardcover. And I, simple premise. Now, I've heard people say they think the premise is very cliched. It's it's heavily borrowed from Twilight Zone sources. No, who gives a shit? Yeah, like, dude. On, I, oh, yeah. I mean, well, like, killer dog, haunted hotel. Right. Like, it, it, I mean, Stephen King kind of his his appeal to me was always kind of taking a very simple premise and drawing the drawing you into the world and the and the lives of the characters and making you care just enough to keep following them within that construct. And I Dude, think this is a sprawl- good poets borrow, great poets steal. Stephen <laughs> King is allowed to steal. <laughs> I, I just I like how many characters there are, and it's a little bit of a slow burn. But once it gets into that stretch of like a hundred to two hundred pages, where just everybody's fighting all the like the little knots that have been you know tied are now pulled tight. It's it flies, and it's that thing that I just really love about it. Well, again, you read Stephen King at that age where you're discovering sex and sexuality and the woman, the image of a housewife humping a picture of Elvis and the way he describes it. That'll make me horny for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't remember you know? that at all. <laughs> Bro, she's on all fours. She has the Elvis picture jammed between her thighs and she's just going to town on it. And her friend walks in on her. Uh, yeah, that was reread multiple times. I memorized what page that was on. Like I would memorize the time code on an old VCR tape of when the boobs would pop up. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, you're number three. It's interesting because this means our top three will not be the same, and my number three is It. Oh, that's my number one. It's okay. Like, I love Would It. Would you, hold on, do you want to just shelve this and talk to It at number one? Yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll, okay, we'll get, great. We'll come back to It. So my number two might, I'm guessing it's also your number two. Because I'm, I, I'm also taking a guess at your number one. Okay. My number two is The Shining. My number two is The Shining. Yeah. Um. So before we get into our ones, let's talk The Shining. Probably the most complicated film adaptation to wrap wrap your head around because of the of the of the choices Kubrick made, the performances that are like so iconic. 
I think you have to separate the film from the book. That's They're right. Two totally different things. And for all the hand wringing about King didn't like the movie or whatever, I've just always been a guy who's like, I love the movie. I love the book. And for yep. me, the book has the single greatest, scariest thing I've ever read from him, which is the hedge animal scene with Jack when he starts mm-hmm. to notice that they're moving. Or no, is it yeah. Danny? It's Danny who, who... Danny notices they're moving. It's Danny who gets encircled by them, right? And it's like, yep. that whole thing is super spooky. And what the book does more effectively than the movie for me is it paints the picture of the history in the same way that it does with Derry. It paints the history of the hotel much more clearly, and it kind of wraps you within that much a little bit more effectively. The, the movie is, does a great job of like, sucking you into a growing sense of dread. But th- for me, the, the what makes the book work is he really has thought out this entire endless backstory of horror around this hotel. And he kind of drops these little nuggets of them throughout the book. And you're just like, I don't know. It's, it's like being sucked but out of a rabbit also hole. also entered, okay, uh, agreed. But this is why I love the book. And I feel it very personally. It is intertwined with a very personal, I think, to King as well, point of view depiction of one man's descent into alcoholic madness. And it's like yeah. Jack Torrance, like thinking about having drinks and chomping on aspirin the whole time. And it's wrapped up in his writing and his failure to write. And like, I read that book really young. Like, I think I was in seventh grade. And obviously a lot of it was over my head. Then I think I revisited it in college or one of those summers, like either late high school, early college, like sitting on my back porch. Then a couple of years ago, after I'd been sober for a couple of years, I tried to reread it and I, I, I found it couldn't. It was just a little too triggering. I think I might be far enough along in sobriety now I could handle it. Also, thanks to cancer, I have bigger fish to fry than quitting <laughs> drinking. Um, but I think that it's depiction... Brad, to your point, uh, like it does a great job with micro and macro. Like it has the history of the place and the dread of the isolation, like classic haunted house kind of stuff going on in this Colorado um, hotel town mountain setting, you know, and the abandonment of it, etc. But also then the isolation of having to deal with being sober and staying sober every second of the day in this place. Like every second Jack is thinking about it and thinking about his past with it and eating aspirin and trying to deal with it. And I think that that's where, and when those two things come together at the end is why it's so successful and visceral in his state of classic for so long. Well, I think you said a while back, I don't remember if it was on mic or we were just talking. It was that that book has a lot to say about adulthood, about parenthood that mm-hmm. transcends the setting and the genre kind of nature of it. And I think it's great. Again, it's got that mix of really compelling characters, really awesome situation, and just a um, a world. He, he just really dives in and develops an entire world that you just want to know more about. I think it's his best book, like most successful literary book and i love that it's neither of our number ones (laughs) (laughs) right all right so my number one's already it you just want to bang that out too 
Well, quickly, because we've revealed yours, now you reveal mine. It's got to be The Stand, right? It's definitely The Stand. So you go first with it. It is my favorite villain. I think it would probably be King's favorite villain, too. I mean, Pennywise is so iconic. Look, the adult stuff with it doesn't, for me, work like the kid stuff. That's not a original take. <laughs> the, okay. ending, the ending is eh. But, you know, at the end of the book, The Shining, Jack's like, at his graduation or something or whatever. I mean, he doesn't always yeah, knock yeah, it out yeah, of the park. Yeah. And these are hard. The the early the early kid stuff in it to me is the best, most engaged I ever was in his book. I reread it when the movie came out a couple years ago, and I, I found it just as enjoyable. I didn't mind the turtle alternate universe stuff, and actually, I found loved it. Loved it. I found the chapter from. Pennywise's perspective to be more engrossing than I remembered. Like when he, he kind of talks about, he just kind of eats because he thinks that's what they're afraid of. He doesn't, it doesn't need to feed on the kids. He's feeding on the fear. I think that stuff's interesting to me. And I look the, there's some really weird shit in there. There's the sex scene with all the kids that has definitely not aged. Well, now listen, I understand the idea of these kids losing their virginity in a sewer as a part of a, gangbang is crazy but as someone who's mentioned twice the idea of reading stephen king as sort of sexuality is being discovered like i think he was acknowledging that like i think he's he went over the top with it i won't disagree with that but i'm just trying to say like i think horror is wrapped up in feeling things and it's a visceral experience like i said and what is more visceral than sex and he probably remembered being a kid around 13, 14 years old, reading these things and discovering it in his own way. I, I feel like that was him paying homage to that. Like, I'm not saying, I'm just trying to defend it a little bit because it's so easy to beat on that scene. No, but ooh, bad choice of words. Yeah, really bad <laughs> choice of words. All of this might end up getting cut out, Garrett. All right. Long story short, Pennywise. Pennywise just works. Like, it's scary. It takes other forms. But the whole killer clown thing just crushes it. It slays. The scene with Georgie is amazing. Oh, the um, opening scene is amazing. And it's just out of the... Like, talk about getting sucked into a book. Ooh. Well, and the I think the scene with the um, that becomes the beginning of the second movie is also just as effective. When it flashes to 85 and there's the hate crime... And then the guys are getting interrogated, and it's like there was the clown. I mean, that stuff's creepy as hell, man. The suicide. I'll say this, suicide on my like, reread. Uh, on my reread, I thought the adult stuff really held up. I thought that her husband chasing her in an abusive relationship was was really sad, man. Like that stuff really weighed on me, and I don't know. I thought it was better than I remembered it. All right. That's my number one. The stand is yours. Make your case. Because it didn't even make my five. <laughs> uh, the stand is only on my five because of a reread I did a few years ago. I think the first 400 pages of the stand when all of society is collapsing is the best thing Stephen King ever wrote as far as like fast paced prologue. I think it's what you're getting at with needful things, Brad, where you're just like, yep, I'm in. This is awesome. I don't ever want tube neck, but this is awesome. And the end is ridiculous, but I did find, you know, going back to, you know, talking about like the Dark Tower and stuff, Randall Flagg 
is his ultimate bad guy, the walking dude with his boots and his belt buckle with the signs of the Zodiac. I think all of that stuff is great. I think Colorado versus Vegas has aged into a yuppie cliche, so that didn't work as well. But I just think that what I viewed so much as a deus ex machina when we were younger is like, are you kidding me? The hand of God came down and really like killed all the bad guys with this stolen nuclear weapon. As I reread it a second time, I was like, yeah, I can deal with that. Like faith is important and finding miracles in the world is a good thing. So I'm down with it. And that ending working for me and the first 400 pages put together. And it's my favorite. I agree with you that the beginning of that book is pretty great. I just, I just ran out of gas with it. And it's weird to say, cause I know it is, um, atop my list and it's not exactly like that's less. Well, of it is stop. laser focused, dude. Yeah. I mean, it is laser focused on this one town. Talk about sprawling the stand. Woof. I just, (laughs) the difference for me is the characters. I can't tell you the Mm -hmm. names of anybody in the stand and I can tell you who the characters are in it, what they do. And I'm not knocking the stand. I just, as I experienced it, as I experienced it, I was just like, okay. Like it was a little bit more of an endurance test for me than I, than some of his other stuff. No, I get that. I think the most memorable character I don't think there's any arguing that the most memorable character in the stand is the bad guy. And I think you can have that argument about it. But you could argue yeah. that one of the the losers club is more important than Pennywise. So Well good list, bro. We Dude, did this it. is a blast. This one was <laughs> I mean Hell, let's do worse five. Yeah, well, thing, we may, maybe that'll be a future distraction. So anyway, speaking of yeah. the Losers Club, let's end with some shout outs. Let's shout out Michael Rothman of the Losers Club. Go check out that podcast. Check out Halloweenies. Go check out Consequence of Sound. Lots of really great content over there, especially uh, uh, vital content during this pandemic while we've been at home. And that's it. So, yeah. uh, look, we got more interviews, good stuff coming in the weeks ahead. Hopefully, Gareth, uh, you'll be uh, feeling better and we'll have you back on again. And uh, in the immortal words of uh, Miami Heat legend Shaquille O'Neal, <laughs> Booty Rappers. Hey, Booty. Now.